Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. This is Charles Sims, your host at In Social Work. Through the Looking Glass, a center dedicated to research, training, and services to families that have been impacted by disability, has reported that there are between 4.1 and 9 million parents who have a disability. The size and diversity of the number of these families speaks to how important it is to understand their experience in an effort to better respond to their needs. Our guest is Christina Sogar. At the time of this interview, a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Berkeley School of Social Welfare. Inspired by her early work as an advocate for adults with developmental disabilities, Ms. Sogar's research has focused on disability and parenting. In this podcast, she will discuss her recent work in understanding the psychosocial aspects of parenting with a disability. Ms. Sogar was interviewed by Katie Knack, a second-year PhD student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, who has more than 20 years' experience in the disabilities field. Today we are talking with Christina Sogar. Christina is a PhD candidate, soon-to-be graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, and she is here to talk about her research on parenting with a disability. Christina, the reason that we chose your topic as a podcast is because we really do have relatively few researchers out there talking about individuals with disabilities and the kind of issues that they face. And so we appreciate your time. If you could start by telling a little bit about your research interest, we can go from there. Sure. In 2010, I was given the opportunity to work with Professor Jane Malden and Dr. Richard Spiegelman on a study investigating the well-being of parents who receive supplementary security income, SSI, and their children. SSI provides cash aid for people with disabilities. Just a little bit of background information. In 2013, the federal SSI payment is $710 per month. Almost all states supplement this amount slightly, though. For example, in California, uh, the federal payment and state supplement combine so that parents are getting a total monthly payment of 866 Assume and these are for parents that are not getting any sort of other types of disability insurance, so just the straight SSI payment would be 866 So we wanted to learn how well these parents are doing. There's this general perception out there that parents who receive uh, temporary assistance for needy families, TANF, may be struggling because they receive less money and they've got work requirements and time limits, but once they transition to SSI, there's no more work requirements, there's no time limits, and there's a little bit more money. However, these parents lose what are often essential supports such as childcare and transportation assistance. So the 2010 study really aimed to identify how SSI receiving parents and their children are doing. We found a great deal of material hardship among the parents we talked to, as well as child health and behavioral problems. So one-third of these parents reported past child welfare involvement as well. And so I became very interested in learning more about the caregiving needs of SSI receiving parents. 
what supports they find most helpful, and the circumstances that triggered the child welfare contacts. I see. You started with talking about being invited to participate in the research study. Can you talk a little bit about your own personal interest when it comes to parents with disabilities? Sure. I have in the past before joining the PhD program, I worked as an advocate for adults with developmental disabilities and also worked as a counselor and a life coach for adults with disabilities. So it's just always been something that's close to my heart and something that I've been very interested in. And then through the PhD program, wanted to begin to learn about how families are doing when the parents have disabilities on a broader scale. Very good. Thank you. So, What are you doing currently in terms of your investigation that pertains to your dissertation? Okay, so my dissertation really builds on the 2010 research. For my dissertation, I revisited some of the parents from the San Francisco study and then also interviewed parents in Alameda County, which is like Oakland, California, that area. So I had a total sample size of 127 parents. The majority of the respondents were women. In fact, 95% of them were, so I'll probably refer to my respondents as mothers throughout some of this interview. Almost all of them were single and had lived in their current county for many, many years. So my dissertation investigates the parents' health, economic, and caregiving problems and resources. I'm interested in how these problems and resources correlate with specific parenting practices, including parenting stress and self-efficacy, how they view themselves as parents, as well as the likelihood of child welfare involvement. And additionally, I'm considering psychosocial characteristics of disability. So the title of my dissertation is Beyond Diagnosis, the Dynamics of Disability and Disruptions in Parenting. And by beyond diagnosis, I'm referring to not just the incapacitation and the symptoms the parents have, but also these psychosocial characteristics. So when I am referring to onset, course, and expected outcome, these come from John Rowland's Family Systems Health Model, and so I consider how onset, course, and expected outcome influence parents' understanding of and reaction to their own disability and their relationship with their children. So onset refers to how the disability occurred, whether it's acute, like a heart attack or stroke, if it's more gradual, or if it's a result of trauma or injury. Course is just a stability of symptoms and abilities. Are parents able to do the same things each day, or do their abilities change from day to day? Basically, are they able to predict what they're going to be able to do over the next few days in terms of their caregiving responsibilities? And finally, I'm considering expected outcome, which refers to whether or not the parent worries that her disability will result in death. So for the parents that I spoke with, the instability of the course of their disability was a tremendous problem for them. One of the questions I asked parents was, are there things you're able to do some days but not others based on your health? 70% said yes to that. And the task that most parents reported being able to do some days but not others was get out of bed. And that really struck me. I thought, you know, when you've got small children that you're responsible for and your health is so volatile, just the stress and pressure that must be associated with that would be very difficult for parents. I imagine so. Now, are most of the individuals in your study mothers of small children? No, it varied quite a bit. Uh, There were, the average age of the children was about 11, but probably only about a third of them had children under the age of five. But many of them had toddlers as well as an older child. Right, and certainly the challenges with children at varying ages uh, 
there's different challenges and they all remain pertinent, I would think, to your research. Absolutely. In terms of the thinking about how disability affects not just the parents' abilities, but how it, it intersects with the family life cycle and the demands placed on the parenting parent. So that, as the parents' health is changing, you know, the needs of the family are also changing. And so I'm really interested in, in how those things intersect to affect their relationship and their caregiving abilities. I see. Now, in your particular study, how was disability defined? By disability, I mean mental health, physical, and learning disabilities. As I said, I was talking to parents who receive SSI, so I use the same definition as the Social Security Administration. To qualify for SSI, applicants must have a disability that prevents them from engaging in substantial gainful activity, which is generally defined as earning $1,000 or more per month, or is expected to result in death within 12 months. But in my sample, the other thing that I was really taken aback with or, or I didn't realize going into this was how often disabilities co-occurred among SSI parents, or at least the ones in my sample. Most parents, over 65%, reported more than one type of disability. Often it was physical and mental health problems. And in fact, one in four parents reported work-limiting mental health, physical, and learning disabilities. Wow, that's quite a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about the health needs of the parents that you interviewed, you know, in addition to those issues that were specific to a diagnosis or a disability? I'm assuming they also had other kinds of health concerns that might not be experienced by a typical mom. Sure. So along with the mental health, physical, or learning disability diagnosis, I looked at things like pain, and post-traumatic stress disorder, and chronic pain was widespread. 80% of the parents experienced chronic pain in the previous six months, and pain was, which this makes sense, but pain was correlated with activity limitations, including completing household chores and meal preparation. And I think that is related to what I was talking about in terms of course, that parents don't know from day to day what they're going to be able to accomplish. And a lot of that is related to pain. They just don't know how severe their pain, whether it's from depression or physical pain is going to be and, and how much that's going to affect the things they're able to accomplish. Also, post-traumatic stress disorder was widespread. Over 50% either scored positive on a four-question PTSD scale or reported a past diagnosis of PTSD. So victimization and violence was a real problem for these parents and I'm sure related to their mental health problems. The other thing was I talked to parents about the health needs of their children and over 40% reported activity limiting physical, emotional, or behavioral problems among their children. And by far the most commonly reported child conditions were asthma and mood disorders, usually depression, as well as developmental disorders. Now, do we know how many SSI recipients are parenting minor children? That's a great question. Not exactly. Official reports from the Social Security Administration do not provide data on parenting rates, so we don't know. We don't have an exact count. However, as part of a study on child-only temporary aid for needy families, TANF cases, Jane Malden, Richard Spiegelman, Matt Stagner, and I used data from the 2010 American Community Survey to develop an estimate. So we looked at the parenting rates among working-age adults with less than $4,000 in earnings 
income less than 100% of the federal poverty line, who reported a work-limiting disability and SSI income of less than $11,000 a year. Basically, the people that we could identify as SSI respondents or SSI recipients. So the parenting rate for that sample was just over 17%. So if we take that and we apply it to the 4.7, almost 4.8 million working age SSI recipients, we get an estimated rate of 816,000 SSI recipients who are parenting minor children. So that would be pretty current information of folks out there in these situations. So based on what you're telling me, it sounds like these families are getting a combination of SSI benefits and maybe the TANF benefit to support the young child or children that are in the home, but are still living in poverty. What can you tell me about their material and economic well-being? So I asked parents about inability to pay rent, inability to pay utilities, as well as food insecurity. And overall, the material hardship was pretty widespread. 22% of parents reported being able to, unable to pay their rent in the previous year. 48% said they were unable to pay utilities and had even had electricity cut off, that type of thing. And over one-third reported food insecurity, that there wasn't enough food and that they or their children were often hungry. And I looked at how material hardships based on different types of health problems and material hardships appeared to be more common among respondents with mental health problems. Although they were slightly more likely to report problems paying utilities, they were much more likely to report problems with rent or providing adequate food for their families. Were you able to find anything within the data you collected that would help speak to why that might have been happening? Yes, actually. I looked at public and private supports and looking at the main support parents relied on. So Section 8, and also looked at how that varied by health problems, and that Section 8 was pretty much evenly available whether or not the parents had mental health problems or not. That is, parents with mental health problems were just as likely to report having Section 8 as parents without mental health problems. But parents with mental health problems were much more likely to report having received food from a food bank, 50% of them versus 30% of parents without mental health problems. So while they were more likely to turn to community support, a public support like a food bank, they reported a much lower level of social support from family or friends. So I think that parents with physical disabilities may have more trouble accessing public supports, you know, making it to a food bank, but they have friends and family members available to help them. So I think parents with mental health problems may be more socially isolated, which may account for some of their economic problems. And I think that's been evident in the, the literature and in the service system is that families tend to kind of distance themselves from folks who have long-term mental health issues. So that would make a lot of sense. What did you learn in terms of parenting and caregiving needs? What do these moms need from the system that they're not currently receiving? So the parents completed a number of different scales measuring different parenting constructs. So I'll just kind of go through each of these. First of all, looking at the caregiving limitations, parents completed the Parent Disability Index. So overall, parents reported limitations in 40 to 50% of basic caregiving tasks based on the ages of their children. Parents reported the greatest difficulty remaining patient, attending social outings, and playing outside with their children. So I looked at some of the covariates for the scale. 
I found positive associations between caregiving limitations and the parent's level of pain and psychological distress, which makes sense that caregiving limitations did not appear to be associated with the age or number of the children. The stability of symptoms was also associated with caregiving limitations. Parents who reported more volatility in their capabilities and what they could do on a day-to-day basis also reported more caregiving limitations. In terms of nurturance, the parents reported a high rate of nurturance, and that was pretty much across the board. But I did look at parenting stress and self-efficacy. And parenting stress was really, really widespread, which probably makes sense. A higher score on the Kessler Psychological Distress Index, so more mental health problems, more anxiety and depression, correlated positively with parenting stress. So greater psychological distress was associated with greater parenting stress. It was also associated with lower self-efficacy. So parents had more trouble viewing themselves as good parents when they're suffering severe mental health problems. However, physical limitations were not associated with parenting stress or self-efficacy. So the mental health problems appeared to have more of a relationship to how parents actually view themselves as parenting as parents than physical limitations. That's fascinating. What are the main supports that parents relied on? Well, I guess probably you'd want to talk about both formal supports from agencies and organizations as well as family and social supports. I mentioned Section 8, and Section 8 parents who did have Section 8 were much less likely to have problems paying rent or to have food insecurity. And other types of supports in-home supportive services is available in the Bay Area, in California, many other states as well, I believe. And that was a huge support for parents. Only about 30% had IHSS, but these services allow parents to get to the grocery. It'll be transportation assistance to the grocery store, helping parents with completing laundry, and basic household tasks. So parents felt less stress and pressure about household tasks because they had the IHSS workers. However, at least in California, in-home supportive services, while they can help parents with disabilities, they cannot help the parents with their children. So let's say a parent has a physical limitation that makes it difficult for her to change a baby's diaper. The IHSS worker can help the parent with the parent's needs, but cannot do anything for that child. And so that's something that I would like to see potentially change so that in-home supportive services could be a greater support for parents in their actual parenting role. Right. And I've worked in the disabilities field myself, and we see that in New York State as well. Now, when you talk about in-home supportive services, is that broadly defined, or is that a specific funding source in your area? Because here in New York, it could mean a personal care aid, paid by Medicaid, or it could mean a developmental disability services paid by a Medicaid waiver program. It's specific. In fact, the way the program works is that parents that qualify for in-home supportive services, they qualify for a certain number of hours, and then they are able to interview and choose their own IHSS worker. They're not just assigned somebody, and that's great because a lot of times parents can choose a friend or relative that they trust, that they feel safe with, and that can also help bring more income into the family. Very good. 
So I understand that there's been some recent research by Dr. Elizabeth Lightfoot from the University of Minnesota and some others that are beginning to suggest that parents with disabilities are disproportionately represented in the child welfare system. You mentioned that earlier that you found some of that in your study. Can you talk a little bit more about child welfare involvement among the parents you interviewed? Sure. So as with the 2010 research, about one-third of the parents in my study reported past or current child welfare involvement. And I've mentioned the psychosocial characteristics, onset course and expected outcome, and I found that parents whose disability had an acute or traumatic onset were much more likely to have been contacted by child welfare services. That was a really interesting finding to me that I'd like to learn more about. Is it a trauma that's resulting in parent disability that's also bringing CPS into the home? I don't know, but I think that's a definitely an area for future research. Parents' physical limitations positively correlated with child welfare involvement, but mental health problems did not, which somewhat surprised me because mental health problems seem to be associated with more caregiving problems as well as economic and material struggles in my study, but it was not associated with CPS involvement. Parent physical limitations, however, were, and when children had activities limiting health problems, the families were much more likely to have been involved with child welfare. Do you know how that compares to with the general population in terms of how many folks without disabilities might have a visit from somebody from the child welfare system? That is really a great question, but there's just not an answer for it at this point. We really do not know about rates of parental disability in the child welfare system. I know that children with disabilities are more likely to have CPS involvement, which is you know, what I found with my research, but it's really an unanswered question about how are parents with disabilities disproportionately represented and what among parents involved with the child welfare system, what are the rates of disabilities? To the best of my knowledge, those questions have not been answered yet. I would like to say that a part of my dissertation has more of a qualitative focus, and so for the parents that did have child welfare involvement, I talked to them about their experiences of the process. Not surprisingly, I guess, they had a fairly negative impression about having CPS come into their home, and they did not feel that their families needed child welfare services. 70% though said that the child welfare worker did not ask them about their health or their mental health problems, that that was in no way part of the interaction. Most of those parents were really relieved by that. They really worried that their health problems and SSI status would bias the child welfare worker against them and result in their children being taken out of the home. So they were not wanting to bring up any of their health issues. They did not want to volunteer any information about their health problems or their economic problems. Only 12% of the parents actually felt that the CPS involvement helped connect them to counseling services or material benefits, things that they needed. Interesting. So what do you see as the next steps in this area as you continue your research or as other folks do similar types of studies? What kinds of questions do you think still need to be answered? Well, as we just mentioned, we definitely need information on prevalence and what percentage of parents involved with child welfare have disabilities. I'd also like to learn more about what public and private supports parents find most helpful. What do they rely on the most? Are food banks and essential support, Section 8, family and friends, what really helps parents complete their parenting tasks? Also, I'm really interested in learning more about 
disability from the child welfare side of things. How do agencies and child welfare workers approach disability? The parents in my study felt that this, their disability was not part of the conversation they had with CPS workers. They thought this was a good thing because they feared discrimination, but it could have prevented the family being connected to helpful services. So I'd really like to learn more about child welfare workers' views of parental disability and possibly even develop trainings to help workers and supervisors become more aware of and sensitive to disability to help prevent discrimination against parents with disabilities in the child welfare system and also help connect them to necessary services. So in your study, you didn't have any direct connection with these folks. It was all by report of the parents themselves. Now, I have most of the parents, almost all of them, 95%, signed a release, which will allow me to access county-level administrative data. I'll be getting that information soon, and that will help corroborate some of the information that I was told from parents about their child welfare involvement. I'm kind of surprised that that many parents were willing to have you access their information. They were really interested in improving services. So the fact that a lot of parents that received a letter about my study chose to not participate. So I think the parents that wanted that were willing to do the interview and help provide this information were also willing to provide administrative data because they were willing to do the interview in the first place. I see. So it's my understanding that you're going to be moving on in your career. You're graduating and you're heading to University of Nebraska. Currently, yes, I will be working as an assistant professor there in the fall. Okay. Do you see any opportunities to continue your research in that area? Oh, absolutely. All of my research to this point has been in an urban setting, and so I would like to continue to research urban settings, but I also like to look at, for parents in a more rural area, they might not have food banks and more of the public supports that are available in an urban area, and what kind of supports do these parents rely on? So I'm interested in beginning to look at that as well. Well, that should certainly contribute to the field in some pretty interesting ways. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Christina, and good luck in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Christina Sogar discuss her work on the psychosocial aspects of parenting and disability. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Charles Sims, inviting you to join us next time at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.